Most of you know the routine. Oh, come, let us adore him. Oh, come, let us adore him. Oh, come, let us adore him, Christ the Lord. Gracious Father, praise and honor and glory be to you. We thank you that you have promised that you will soon return, but until that time, you will empower a people to bring the gospel to the world around us. Empower us with your spirit. We ask this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. I don't know if I'm using the right word, but I am proud. I am proud to be an American. All right? Proud to be American, just like uh, Jerry Jones was down when I was in Texas. I was proud to be American. I am also proud that I'm half Filipino. I'm proud of my Filipino heritage. I think there's a lot of great things that have come into my life because I have that blend. I am proud to be a Seventh-day Adventist Christian. And growing up, I just have realized that we, not we, I don't want to use we as a general, but many Seventh-day Adventists have no clue why they're a Seventh-day Adventist, why they grew up a Seventh-day Adventist, and they, do not, they don't have the pride, and they almost say it apologetically, that I am a Seventh-day Adventist. And as you know, I was, the last few weeks, we've talked about how I believe the law is good news. The Shabbat, the Sabbath, is good news. And this topic right here, and I, and I, I almost apologetically say, because we're doing it on communion weekend, but I feel that maybe this topic right here is the most important. I'm saying it, the most important, the most different doctrine that we have with most of Protestant Christian, evangelical Christianity that you need to know. You know, up here in the north, which I didn't realize as much until we moved down into the south, first to Wichita, and then we went all the way down to hot Texas, and um, I realized that up here, there are a lot more old cars. That there are old car shows in every little downtown. I mean, you got a downtown with like 150 people, and you got 150 old cars in that town. I mean, I know in, it's in Lamont, right, Pat? Lamont has it Wednesday night. Um, Westmont Thursday night, Downers Grove Friday night, we've been to Oak Brook, the mall, and they had all these old cars. I mean, you got old cars all over. And people love showing their cars that are restored to something pristine. Now here's the thing with old cars. They are old. But they are restored to almost the point where you say, it's like new. Have you ever heard somebody say, oh, it's like new? Or are those, where they, you know, the shows, they have shows like, what is it, Fast and Loud or 
graveyard cars or whatever, whatever. There's like a hundred of them. And they restore this car that they find in a junkyard. And they restore it. And they're like, it's, it's a new car. But it's not a new car. But it's like a new car. Or somebody, you know, they might dress somebody up. You know, he, he had long hair and, you know, unshaven. And they shave him, whatever. And this, this guy's new. It's like a new man. I think this is more what Scripture is talking about when it talks about the new covenant. Let's go to Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 8, verses 6, and eight, six through 8. I'm going to read it out of here. Hebrews 8, verses 6 through 8. But the ministry Jesus has received is as superior to, their, to theirs as the covenant of which, of which he is mediator is superior to the old one, and it is found on better promises. For if there had been nothing wrong with the first covenant, no place would have been sought for another. But God found fault with the people and said, The time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Actually, I'll continue. I don't have it up there, but you can just listen. It will, be made, it will not be like the covenant I made with the forefathers when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they did not remain faithful to my covenant and I turned away from them, declares the Lord. And then if you read, it continues exactly what Elder David Dye read. It is a quote pretty much directly from Jeremiah 31. By the way, he says this covenant... This new covenant, who is he making it with? What does it say according to the text? The people of Israel and the people of Judah. He says, I am making a new covenant with the people of Israel and the people of Judah. This is very important. We'll, we'll come back to that later. Because I feel that in our day, Christianity has become Gnostic. Now, I don't know if you know what Gnosticism is. Gnosticism was actually around pre-Christ, but it was very prevalent in Christ's day and in Paul's day. So when he's writing to the Corinthians, he's, he's fighting Gnosticism. Now, Gnosticism is that you actually gain salvation sort of through knowing. Gnostic comes where we get the word know. Instead of a K-N, they had a G-N. But Gnosis means to know. So you gain, the more you know, the closer you are to God. But the idea of Gnosticism is that there was this essence, this true knowledge, who was the main God. And then there was this sort of sub-God who was the creator God. But the creator God was sort of evil. He created everything good, but he created evil. And he, the essence was evil. So, so the, the true essence sent the creator God and said, ah, oh, that sort of got messed up. So I'm going to send a demigod named Jesus to sort of fight against the wrath of the creator God. And this is infiltrated into Christianity to this day. Because in most Christianity, they see the Old Testament God as different than New Testament God. Have you ever, have you encountered this? That it's a different God. They don't understand that Jesus actually said, before Abraham, 
I am. He claimed to be the I am that is encountering everybody. Actually, in John 1, it says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And it says, and I think it's in verse 3, where it says, and everything that was made was made by him. So who is actually the creator God? Yeshua. Jesus. He is the creator. He is the whole God that encounters mankind throughout Old Testament. So guess what? If he is different in the New Testament, well, he's bad in one part and he's good in another. It's all on him. But this is how most of, Christian, of the Christian world sees. So if you go to the picture, most of the Christian world sees they've got the Old Covenant, which is this promise, which is Mosaic Law. All the law of Moses. Boom. But then this new covenant, when Jesus comes, he says, I'm going to establish a new covenant. And it's not going to be over keeping the rules and regulations. It's going to be of grace. We are going to establish grace. Okay? You are saved by grace now. Go to the next one. Same thing, sort of a cartoony picture. is Because I saw these all over the place. You have the law that brings bondage, and this is what I did for the Jews, but I changed it when Jesus came. And I made it for grace, and it's in your heart and everything, and it's so cuddly and nice and teddy bearish. So, but I was sort of harsh back then. I want to redefine some things. Well, I don't know if you, what your definition of grace is, but I want you to understand grace. For so long, I thought grace meant, or I defined it as, getting something you do not deserve. I actually think that's wrong. I think it's wrong to say it's getting something you don't deserve. Because guess what? If God extends it to you, then you deserve it. You deserve it. Now, I know it doesn't come from you, but you deserve it because God gives it to you. He doesn't dangle a carrot over you. And say, oh, you don't deserve it. Remember that, that commercial, the, I don't know, it was a Geico or something where, no, I think, I don't know if it was Allstate where that guy has the, the dollar, you know, and, oh, oh, you know, come get it. It's an insurance one. No, he does not do that with you. He offers it. What grace really means is getting something that is outside of yourself. Something that you cannot provide for yourself. Because guess what? The breath that you breathe, the breath that Adam breathed, the breath that Moses and Abraham breathed, that is grace. Because they are not providing it by the, for, you know, for themselves or by themselves. God provided it for them. Creation is grace. Every provision of food is grace. And salvation is grace because there is a condition that we were at that we could not provide for ourselves. We were in quicksand and the more we swam, the quicker we sank. And God said, something from the outside needs to save you. That is grace. So guess what? Grace extends all the way from Adam to the end. Grace is life. Every breath you take is from grace. So let me read this quote. If any of you guys have ever watched Christian TV from Joseph Prince, if you ever know, do you guys know this guy? Have you ever seen him? I don't know if he's Korean or what, but uh, 
but he, he's, yeah. Anyways, let me just read this quote. I found this. In the new covenant, God doesn't want us to be blessed when we obey the law and cursed when we, when we fail. Doesn't such a system, a system sound awfully similar to the old covenant? Covenant. Grace is undeserved, unmerited, and unearned favor of God. The moment you try, wait, that you try to merit, okay, it's a little bit small here, merit the free favors of God, his grace is nullified. Now, I somewhat agree with his comment. What I don't agree with is the first part. But that is typical evangelical Christianity. Most Christians believe this. Actually, some Adventists actually believe this. That the Old Covenant is keeping the law. And they'll go back to, to Deuteronomy and say those curses that happened were salvific. I don't know if you that it's, salvin, it's about salvation. But that's not really what it is. It, the Old Testament is under, misunderstood. It's really about curses. If you go to the next slide, curses are about consequences, period. If God is life, and you separate from life, which is God, what's the opposite? Death. Does that make sense? If you unplug a, a lamp from the outlet, what happens to the lamp? It doesn't work. That's all this is saying. The more you draw away, the more you disconnect from my grace. And bad things will happen. You will just start seeing this happen. It's not that God is vengeful, but that's what, when they use the word God's wrath, that's what happens. I just heard an Adventist preacher talk about that and it, and it made me cringe, where he talked about us standing before God's wrath and that we couldn't stand it if it weren't for Jesus standing up in his grace. And I was like, do you really believe that? Because that's not what Seventh-day Adventists believe. Let me share some things. Because you need to know what Old Testament people believed. But I'm going to do it through New Testament. If you look at Romans, they're all up here. Romans chapter 3, verses 19 through 20. It says this. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. So can I ask you, how many people have become righteous by the works of the law? No one, right? All right, next verse. Romans chapter 4. In fact, if in fact Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. What does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. So he said, was Abraham justified by his works? No, not before God. Romans 4, verses 13 through 15. It was not through the law 
that Abraham and his offspring received the promise that he would be the heir of the world. But through the righteousness that comes, through, comes by faith. For if those who depend on the law are heirs, faith means nothing and the promise is worthless. Because the law brings wrath and where there is no law, there is no transgression. So, Abraham didn't receive it. Do we receive the promise by the works of the law? No. Galatians chapter 2. Know, what a, know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. Because the works of the law, wait, because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. Who will be justified by the works of the law? No one. I know I'm getting repetitive. But the Bible does that. Galatians 3, verse 21. Is the law therefore opposed to the promises of God? Absolutely not. For if a law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness would certainly have come by the law. Could the law impart life? No. Scripture says it. Could righteousness come by the law? No. He said if it could impart life, it would impart righteousness. Okay, last, last one concerning this. What shall we conclude then? Do we have an advantage? Not at all. He's talking about to Jews. Not at all. For we have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are under the, under the power of sin. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. How many from Adam till now, have been righteous by their own works. Nobody. Nobody. Do you see that? Nobody. It doesn't matter if you're a Jew or a Gentile, a Christian or an atheist, nobody is made righteous by your own work. Nobody can pull themselves out of quicksand without somebody helping them from the outside. But Christianity for so long has taught that in the Old Covenant, that that was a requirement. And it was from Moses. They don't even say it's from God. They say the Mosaic law that comes from Moses, and they use a, they use a verse in John chapter 1, I think it's verse 17, they, that this law came from Moses. Now, do you see how bad that is? So let me ask you a question, and the question's up there. How were people before Jesus to be saved then? If that's if there are two separate covenants, how were they saved? Let's, I, I, I want to read a couple of commonalities real quick before we get to that conclusion. First, um, I do not have this slide up there, but I'm just going to read to you. It's in, in Hebrews chapter 8. If you are still there, in Hebrews chapter 8, verses 10 through 12, which we were about to continue. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. 
I will put their laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother, saying, Know you the Lord, because they will all know me, from the least to the, of them to the greatest. For I will give, forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. Now, do you remember, I don't know if you remember what Elder Dye had read earlier, do you see any commonalities between what it said there and here? What, what is going to happen to the law in the new covenant? He's going to write them on the heart. So that is a commonality. This is something new. I will write them on their heart. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will you have to teach your neighbor. Do you remember when he took Israel through Egypt and then into Canaan, did those people know God? No. So they, what they were supposed to do and what they had broke is they were supposed to be a light to the greater community. But they were not. He says, okay, I will no longer place that responsibility of, for you to be that light. People are just going to know. This is going to spread like wildfire. People will know the gospel. And then there will be no more remembrance of sin. There's going to be one final sacrifice that's going to do it all. It's not talking about getting rid of Mosaic law as in the Ten Commandments. It has nothing to do with that. He actually says, I'm going to transfer it from this stone, which is sort of hard and where you're indifferent to it, and I'm actually going to inscribe it on your heart. I want to make it from there to here. I want you to own this. There are other commonalities with the, with the new covenant, or actually with covenant as, as a whole. Uh, if you go to Matthew 26, verse 28, it says this. It's up there. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. There it talks about the forgiveness of, of sins. Hebrews 9, verse 18 through 20. This is why even the first covenant was not put into effect without what? Without blood. When Moses had proclaimed every command of the law to all the people, he took the blood of calves together with water, scarlet wool, and branches of hyssop, and sprinkled the scroll and all the people. He said, this is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you to keep. Hebrews 12 and 13, it says this, to Jesus the, me the mediator of a new covenant and the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. And in, in chapter 13, now may the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep. So what is really the new covenant about, or what is the whole covenant based off of? It says there, Blood. Blood. This is the key theme. Blood. But in Old Testament times, what did they do that was related to blood? They had a sacrificial system. Whoosh, whoosh, 
By the way, do you realize that Jews never believed themselves that they were saved by keeping the law? Hence, there would be no sacrificial system. Do you understand that? If they were keeping the law perfect, they don't need to sacrifice for cleansing of sin. Does everybody get that? I'm going to say it one more time. If they felt they had to keep the law for righteousness' sake and that that was what was keeping them righteous, then they didn't need to have the sacrificial system. It was about the blood that was doing the cleansing. But they thought that it was the lambs and the bulls and the goats' blood that was doing the cleansing. But in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 4 through 10, it says this. I'll read it from my Bible. It says this. But it is impossible. Now, does it say it is improbable? Or almost possible? No, it says, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. There was not one sacrifice that happened in Old Testament that actually washed away sins. Do you understand that? It says, it is impossible. Therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you do not desire, but a body you prepared for me. With burnt offerings and sin offerings, you were not pleased. Then I said, here I am. It is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, O God. First he said, sacrifices and offerings, burnt offerings and sin offerings you do not desire, nor were you pleased with them, although the law required them to be made. Then he said, here I am. I have come to do your will. He set aside the first to establish the second, and by that will... We have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus, Christ once for all. So the argument is, whoever wrote Hebrews, which I do believe it's Paul, is saying, he makes the whole argument in the last couple chapters, they have been sacrificing and sacrificing and sacrificing. You have, because it's to the Hebrews. You've been sacrificing, sacrificing, sacrificing. But Jesus' sacrifice is really the only one that has truly mattered. So whether you are Adam or Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, David, Solomon, Jonah, whoever it is, if they are in the kingdom, it is because of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. That is gospel. And I, I don't know if, you, if the light bulb is, oh, light bulb. You know, if this is coming yet, but hopefully one day it clicks. This is a great Advent message. Everybody. We believe differently because we believe everybody that's ever lived, if they are in the kingdom, is saved by one sacrifice. Never because of their own works. That's gospel. Do you actually understand? And I'm sorry, I'm getting a little bit fired up here. Do you understand that that is why the three angels' message is so important? It's not because of just the Sabbath. We got this three angels' message that we point out about the Sabbath, and we point out about Babylon. No, the real three angels' message is there is a, counter, a counterfeit way of salvation that people are preaching. They're saying that there are two ways to be saved. 
that there are two covenants. That people somehow at one point, and maybe up to now, because do you know that there are Christians that believe that there is still a different covenant to the Jews of, of now than to the Christians? They have two separate covenants. And he saves them differently. That's ridiculous. Romans talks right against that. He says, if you're in the kingdom, you are grafted into the main vine. You are a Jew. Hey, guess what? Now is where I'm a heretic. And I'm saying this on film. I believe we're Jews. You are a Jew. And if you're going to use this spiritual Jew thing, it's not even that. You are a Jew. The people that came in with, with, the, with the Passover, when they left Egypt, because there were Egyptians called the mixed multitude, when the Egyptians left with, with Israel, they didn't say, oh, you're a spiritual Jew. You're not really a Jew. You're a spiritual Jew. And their family members, you're spiritual Jews. Hey, Rahab, you're spiritual Jew. Jesus would have been a spiritual Jew. Because all four of those women that are mentioned, now Bathsheba, there's debate over that, but all of them were not Jews of heritage. Do you understand that? They weren't Jews. Tamar wasn't a Jew. Rahab wasn't a Jew. So he's a, you're a spiritual Jew. No, you are Jews. You are grafted into the vine. There is one covenant, one vine. That's what we're a part of. We believe everybody's saved because of one sacrifice, Jesus Christ. That is gospel. Preach that to your neighbors. Let them know there are not two different gods. There is not a God of wrath that wants to, you know, and then Jesus comes to sort of protect, okay, I love them too. No. We have gospel. Embrace it. And that's what this is about. That's what this covenant is about. To remind us the blood of Jesus is what saves all.